Welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Darby Toth, a technical field services representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Rep with Western United Dairies. Sitting here in Fernell on a rainy morning, Darby, I know it's probably going to make a few folks around the state a little bit envious, but we are getting a little bit of rain up here, so small favors you know, right now. <laughs> yeah, we can't complain too much this week. I went to a baseball game in Visalia on Wednesday and actually needed a sweatshirt as it was wrapping up. It was like 65 degrees, and oh so we're getting so spoiled before next week when it's forecasted to be 111. Oh boy. <laughs> well, we will make the best of all this weird weather we're having and hopefully we'll get back to like kind of more, more normal temperatures for the summer. I think it's good that it's been a little bit chilly with the drought conditions we have going. Um, I have been out in the field a lot as we've talked about um, big deadlines coming up in a lot of the industry for water quality. The Central Valley obviously has their big deadline July 1st for annual reports. If you need someone to review your annual report, we hope you'll call Paul Souza and he will be happy to help you do that if you don't have a consultant to work with. And then I am working on those deadlines on the North Coast region for dairies to turn in water quality plans. So you have two weeks left. If you haven't gotten on my books, it might be a little tight, but we will try to do our best. Well, even with all that busyness going on, we still managed to put together quite an episode this week. We have our market update. You got to sit down and talk with Nick DeCastro from the Land Trust. And then you and I both sat down to talk to our newest team member, Aubrey Betancourt. Yeah, it's a really good episode. I think there's a lot of um, really good opportunities for members if you listen closely. And especially with Nick at Land Trust, um, I was really enjoying our chat with Aubrey. So really excited for our members to hear a little bit more about her new role at Western. With that being said, let's jump right in. Hey folks, hope you had a great week. Well, heavy supplies remain the feature at the CME cheese market, particularly for blocks. We've seen a pretty steady uh, supply make its way to Chicago, and it's really putting pressure on block cheese prices in particular. Uh, they tumbled to $1.4575, kind of midweek, um, on really heavy sell-side volume. Um, we did jump back a little bit, though, to finish the week slightly stronger at $1.50. Barrels, meanwhile, um, are still holding a pretty sizable premium to the block market, um, ending the week 17 cents above blocks um, at $167.25. Add uh, Tosca boxes to the list of things in short supply. Uh, they're wooden 640 um, boxes that are a critical part of the cheese supply chain. And we're hearing that um, supplies are hard to come by and that 640s are increasingly tied up in storage, you know, sort of limiting the box turnover. Um, apparently high lumber prices, labor issues are slowing uh, the production of those boxes. And so cheese manufacturers are quickly looking for alternatives, uh, whether that's using less preferred plastic boxes um, or having to shift more production into 40 pound blocks or barrel production. Uh, so uh, eyes are on um, that little added hiccup in the supply chain. Um, we've seen a little heat in the Midwest, some reports of um, trimming milk supplies just a bit there, but even so, spot milk continues to trade at pretty dis big discounts to class prices in the region. We did get trade data for April, and U.S. exports hit a record high. 
Um, we shipped out 89 million pounds. That was 9% more than the month before and up 51% year over year. A volume to Mexico and South Korea were both really solid. Um, with our cheese market kind of crumbling here as of late, you would think we would be more competitive um, here in the U.S. and could encourage a bit more export traffic in the third quarter. However, anecdotal reports suggest, you know, these logistics um, issues and added costs, both by land and sea um, and delivery timing issues could be crimping some of our opportunities. Moving over to butter, um, the market seems very range bound. We have been trading between $1.75 and $1.85 since mid-April and expectations are uh, for more of the same in the weeks ahead. Uh, butter exports also jumped in April, um, up roughly 2 million pounds year over year. And that's the biggest monthly volume going back to mid-2014. Lots of sales into the Middle East and North Africa. Over in the non-fat market, um, we, we did... Um, nudge a little higher midweek, uh, back to the $1.31 mark. Um, however, we, we closed out on Friday uh, just slightly lower at $1.30. Um, export figures were also positive there. Um, trade flows picked up in April with 60 million pounds shipped. That's up 43% year over year. Volume into Southeast Asia um, did slump However, um, down 26% year over year. And um, we are hearing with this little uptick in the uh, domestic prices that uh, Mexico, Mexico seemed to be kind of back in the picture this week. So that's always good news to hear. Uh, finishing out the dairy complex with whey, uh, the market didn't seem quite strong enough to hold on to 70 cents, but market fundamentals do appear to be supporting the market right around 60 cents. Context, no product can be found, um, but the demand's pretty good um, and, and continues to clear uh, availability. Finally, on grains, we are in a full-blown weather market as common for this time of year. Uh, both corn and soybeans continue to fluctuate, um, tossing around by prevailing weather forecasts for the day. Uh, for now, the crops appear to be in pretty good condition. According to USDA, we are at the week at about 72% of the U.S. corn crop in good to excellent condition. That's uh, down a little bit um, from last week at 76%, uh, but ahead of last year at 74%. We have a couple things coming up for the next week to keep an eye on. Tuesday, we get another global dairy trade event. And also Tuesday, June 15th, is the deadline to acquire Q3 coverage under the Dairy Revenue Protection Program, the DRP coverage uh, program. So if you're interested, Tuesday is the last day to add or um, finish uh, coverage for the quarter. And on Thursday, we get the May milk production report. Everybody have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our communities safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. We would love to welcome to the show Nick DeCastro of Land Trust. Welcome, Nick. I appreciate you having me on here, Melissa. 
Absolutely. Nick, you have a, a newer organization that is working with farmers and ranchers across the country um, in a pretty unique way. So can you tell us a little bit about Land Trust and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I like to start with what we are not. So we're not a conservation easement. I know that our, our company's name could lend people to believe that. We'd forgive you for it. Um, we actually, Land Trust is one word. And it's, we comprise it of two very important things to us. Obviously land is what this company is built upon, private land specifically. And then trust in the good old fashioned sense of the word trust, like I trust you and you trust me. So I'll get into kind of what we are now. Uh, land trust is what we call a recreational access network. So we partner with landowners all over the country to help them generate recreational income uh, from their property. So we do that through a marketplace. Um, our website looks and feels a lot like VRBO or Airbnb or some of these other marketplaces where, you know, landowners can list their farm or ranch or just, you know, rural property and recreators, hunters, fishermen, and, and other types of recreators can browse through listings, look at pictures, and, you know, they can make inquiries and request to book, you know, uh, experiences on your land. So uh, we have a lot of, in our first year, we launched basically 2020 was our first year, which was an interesting one to uh, to get started in. But we grew to 200,000 acres in about 38 or so states. And then in the first five months of 2021, we've over doubled. So we're about 400 or so thousand acres uh, as we sit here today. And we, we plan on getting towards about a million acres listed um, by the end of the year. So that's a super brief overview, but essentially, like I said, you know, our landowners partner with us. We don't sell them anything. They partner with us to start generating recreational uh, income from their land. Awesome. So it's kind of a way to elevate what they're doing on their property and utilize resources that maybe aren't going, you know, used because they're busy or it's just the opportunity isn't available for them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I've gotten to speak to thousands of landowners through starting this company and our team has obviously too. And I, you know, I always like to say, I don't come from production agriculture. So I, I like to put that out there. I'm not a, I don't want to pretend or be thought of as someone who's pretending. I think that coming from the outside often does have benefits. You know, I approach things with new eyes. I don't have any perspective or baggage or totally. preconceived notions on how things are supposed to work. But after working with thousands of landowners and talking to them after, you know, working with uh, organizations like the Farm Bureau and, you know, extension programs and just really learning it really has dawned on us. And I think we at Land Trust believe the future of working lands is gonna depend on a portfolio of income. Obviously oh. agricultural production being number one, but then recreation and, and conservation income opportunities. So, you know, we believe those generational places to continue on and be strong and profitable, they need to be good at all three of those things, not just ag production. Absolutely. Um, so one of the first questions that comes to mind with producers when they hear about land trust is it's a great opportunity, but sure. what if someone untrustworthy wants to book my property yeah. for an experience? So can you talk a little bit about the measures you have in place to kind of protect, protect landowners and the people that may be booking through you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, a, it, and it was what the first thing we needed to figure out, because obviously we're talking about uh, the most valuable asset these landowners have in most cases, which is the land, not only from a pure uh, financial perspective, but this is the place where they live in many cases. It's been in their family. It's, it's legacy. So, of course, protecting that and making sure it's safe is uh, our primary 
objective in facilitating this marketplace and this opportunity. So we have a trust in, and uh, safety program. Everything starts with the fact that all sportsmen who use our platform and our website, they go through ID verification. So before they can ever make an inquiry to your, you know, to you as you're in your listing, they've got to upload their either driver's license or their passport. You know, we use a third party that runs all sorts of black magic technology that <laughs> ensures that you are who you say you are. Great. Uh, it's the same third party provider that platforms like Airbnb use. So awesome. already we know we strip away anonymity. So you're just not some anonymous person. Great. Then those people pay in full with credit cards. So now we have your ID and your credit card. These are things that make people act much more trustworthy when, when you don't know. And on this point, you know, when we were getting this company off the, the, uh, the ground and talking to landowners, by and large, landowners had, have had, generally speaking, good experiences whenever they had let people on, but it was always that story of the one bad experience. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur, my job is to figure out why did those bad experiences happen and make sure they don't happen with our platform. And, you know, the, the leaving a gate open or breaking a gate or rutting something out or, you know, stuff like that that was not great. When we looked at all these instances and stories that we heard from landowners, it basically came down to those, the, the people coming on the property being anonymous. You know, they knocked on their door. You didn't know them from Adam. Like they could be the nicest person in the world or they might be that one person right. that doesn't respect the land. And so that was our first goal is like, let's strip away the anonymity. Um, and, and so that's how we do it. Now, when we get into talking about liability, so Land Trust, of course, carries a couple million dollar policy ourselves as a backstop to our landowners. Mm -hmm. Now, this year we're, we're going and extending and adding some new things to it. So we're doing participant insurance. So if uh, a group comes out onto your place, three or four folks, and one of them breaks an ankle or something, you know, something happens to them, they come to us. So we, we carry that participant insurance that covers their medical bills, any of that. Um, I guess I should back up. When any users sign up for our platform, they automatically, part of our terms of service, hold you as landowners harmless. Okay. So unless there's negligence, you know, if, right. yeah, yeah. if you're negligent, then that obviously that doesn't cover you. <laughs> yeah. But if there's no negligence on the landowner's behalf, they already hold you harmless. Then we're carrying participant insurance to make sure that if something does happen, they can come to us and we'll cover them. We also do property protection, which we self-insure. So that's up to $10,000. So the fabled someone shoots my cow or someone breaks a gate or something like that, come to us um, and we'll work with you on that. And then we just are announcing a new Farm Bureau partnership. So Farm Bureau offers a, what they call an agritainment writer mm -hmm. uh, to policies. It's pretty inexpensive. It's like between $100 and $300 a year. Okay. And that covers first dollar coverage for any sort of commercial activities on your property. So if you do apple picking or hay rides or hunting right. or fishing or X, Y, or Z, that will be first dollar coverage you can have added on. So some states, you don't actually need that. States like Kansas, they really want to incentivize agritourism, which all this stuff kind of is considered. And so they cover their landowners and indemnify them at the state level from anything you know that could be brought to them. But every state is different. So we always suggest and we guide, uh, guide people to Farm Bureau to check out that first dollar coverage. Totally. Well, and Farm Bureau is always a great partner on those insurance policies. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a good option for folks, someone they can, they can trust to handle that appropriately. Great. Absolutely. Well, now that we've kind of got a little bit of the nerves out of the way, I guess, for sure. producers, yeah. can you talk a little bit about examples of recreation that producers have on their property? I know obviously a really big thing in the ag community is hunting. So I'm assuming that's a big yep. draw for a lot of folks yeah. 
they have great hunting property. Absolutely. And that's where we started. So I'm the founder of the company. I started the company because I wanted to use it. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, we're based here in Bozeman, Montana. I don't know if I said that or not. Okay. So, uh, you know, we have tons of public land in Bozeman and, and Montana generally, but you always find yourself wanting to recreate, hunt fish or whatever on, on private land because, you know, farmers and ranchers are awesome stewards and yes. usually it's great habitat. We just, it's a good experience. Totally. So uh, that's where we started. And, and hunting was really an interesting place to start because it's, there's so much revenue opportunity in hunting versus something like camping. You know, camping, right. there's absolutely revenue opportunity there, but it's just much smaller. You know, totally. maybe $25 per booking versus in our first year, our average booking value was $1,200. Oh, wow. So, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. So there, hunters, it's a passion. It's something we spend tons of money on and there's a lot of value in it. So starting with hunting was great. You know, our, our highest earner in 2020, our first year of operation made $28,000. Uh, he was a farmer in New Jersey of all places. For any of your listeners who haven't been there, New Jersey actually has beautiful farm country. Right. It's just, so, so yes, he listed between, I think he had about 10 listings between 20 and 80 acres. Okay. And he has white-tailed deer and turkeys. So he was charging $85 a day and he made $28,000. And he That's didn't amazing. even meet any of these people. So he was in the tractor. He'd get a request via land trust. He can open it up. He can message them back. If he wants to, he can talk to people on the phone. He definitely doesn't have to. And we don't give out any of that information. Okay. And he can accept or decline those. And so um, it's significant income and it's almost pure profit. Totally. Like I yeah. said, this is a, it's really an unrealized asset that is sitting underneath your feet every single day. Uh, yeah. And so that's, we have a real passion for farming, farmers and ranchers. And, you know, all the conversations that happen about sustainability, look, if we can't make farmers and ranchers more profitable, then it's kind of a moot point because eventually those places will be sold and they'll be developed and we'll lose working lands forever, you know? Yes. Yeah. And $28,000, when you hear a number like that for a small farmer ranch, that could be the difference between, you know, that extra load of feed or I just, uh, even in some cases, a make it or break it. Property taxes. Yep. Property taxes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just especially thinking about this year and drought and all the things um, folks are going through, that's a that's a huge deal. And and you know that was as you mentioned your top earner, but there's a lot of opportunity between not doing it. We had a lot of people between ten and twenty thousand dollars too. You know, and again, it's all found money and it's almost pure profit. Uh, and there's very little input of time on on the producer's behalf. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like a really great opportunity, Nick. Can you talk a little bit about how producers that might be interested can get in contact with you or maybe what the what the process should be for them to start thinking about working with Land Trust? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the one thing I really want to impress upon landowners is that recreation is a very large opportunity. And there's an immense, immense amount of people out there, especially after coronavirus, who were just like wanted to get outdoors and do totally. way more outdoors. And so that's a very big opportunity for private landowners. You know, public land and national parks got swarmed this last year. Yeah. And a lot of that could be demand that could be captured by private landowners too. Um, and they get to do it while maintaining 100% control. I really want to focus on that point. Yeah. Because one of the things that I've learned through this building this business, I thought income would be like the number one uh, priority for landowners and why they'd want to work with land trust. But really I found that control was it. So landowners, you know, you maintain 100% control. We're just a technology partner that helps you access the market. So you set your own prices, you set 
set your own rules, your own availability, all that stuff. Um, you know, we don't do, we don't have anything to do with that. We can help you uh, if you're like, hey, what do you think my place and all that good stuff? Uh, what do you think we have? What do you think we could charge? We're happy to give our opinions, but at the end of the day, you choose. So if, if landowners are interested, we got a great team of real live human beings here in Montana who will talk to you on the phone. Um, you can go to landtrust.com. There's a you know big button on the top of the webpage that says for landowners. That and will we'll link to. that yeah. website in our show yeah. notes too. Perfect. Yeah, there's a landowner page. You can read about everything we're talking about. You can look at videos of producers who are telling you, you know, their experience working with us. Um, and then if you, you know, fill out that form, our team will actually do all the work for you. We know that our, our landowner partners are extremely busy people. So we want to make this as easy as possible. Uh, so, you know, if you sign up there, we'll give you a call. You know, you could be out working and we, we'll just ask you a handful of questions. We can build a draft listing for you and then we'll review it with you. And if everything looks good, we'll put it live. And now all of a sudden you have a new recreation business. It's working for you in the background. Uh, if you're, if you're a more technologically savvy person, you could set up your land trust listing in 15 minutes. I mean, honestly, if you've oh, had any experience with Airbnb or VRBO, you could do it yourself. We just, we have a service, you know, we want to be, we want to serve our landowners. We want to make it as easy as possible so we can do it for you. But uh, many of our younger, you know, producers can do this in 15 minutes and it's free, by the way, we don't sell you anything. Okay. Uh, so all we, all we do is we take a commission on any of the revenues from bookings. So sure. we take a 15% commission. You keep 85% of the money. Awesome. Not to jump around too much, Nick, but we talked sure. a little bit about hunting and that's a huge yep. draw, but that's not the only recreational Correct. activity folks can offer. There's hiking and there's all kinds of different um, opportunities out yeah. there. Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, we started with hunting, which was great because it's a big revenue driver. Fishing, of course, uh, kind of goes hand in hand with that. It's a lot of this kind of same recreator. But we're right now starting to roll out new uh, types of recreation. So um, in the sand hills of Nebraska, we're, we're getting a large footprint there. We're going to do bird watching this summer. Um, cool. So it's a really cool environment. So there's agritourism stuff, you know, hey, uh, we, you know, we're a Western company, so ranching brandings if you want to yep. sell experiences for folks to come out and experience a branding sounds crazy to farmers and ranchers but people will pay you because this isn't every day to them this is a totally new experience yeah um and so yeah it's kind of as you know it could be from bird watching hiking camping um more agritourism type stuff where you could be doing a branding or we have some folks in louisiana who are thinking about doing crawfish boils because oh, cool. you know they grow they grow rice and crawfish down in louisiana yeah and you know, they're looking at experiences where folks could book something to come out, pull their own crawfish pots, and then, you know, have a boil. So that's agritourism. You know, they're getting to a, a chance to look at and experience what it is to be a crawfish farmer and rice farmer, and then they're getting, you know, a fun experience on top of that. So we're getting more and more into these other types of recreation and agritourism types of things. Our core today, as you look at the website, is obviously hunting, um, and there's a lot of money to be made with that. But we will be uh, in the next month or two months rolling out some of these new things and we'll be marketing to uh, those types of recreators as well. Awesome. And as you mentioned, after a year of COVID and especially when we saw how things like shutdowns can disrupt our food system, I think people are just hungry for those types of experiences. So yeah, really and on that point too, you know, one of our higher level go goals here at Land Trust as we feel, um, 
is really to reconnect the 99% of us who aren't producers with the people, the 1% who are the producers. Yeah. And I, I, that's just such an important thing for us. And the more people who come out and enjoy these places and meet the families and the people who run them and see these beautiful places that they steward, uh, they will realize that landowners are probably the best stewards uh, of the land and environment that there are. And so that's a really, it's an ambition for us to really reconnect them. That personal relationship is what will change people's minds, not just watching a documentary on Netflix about how production agriculture is this big, bad thing. Yeah. It's the most important industry we have in the world. And without it, we don't eat, we don't wear clothes. We don't, you know, it's food, fuel, and fiber, right? Yeah, I think the biggest tool we have to combat the the Netflix documentaries, so to speak, is, yeah. is the on the ground experience and getting people Correct. boots on the ground on farms. So we really appreciate you guys being a partner in that and helping facilitate that. It's it's super important. And even if someone's just going out to your property for a hunt, maybe they camp, you know, near your yeah. corrals or something and and right. that makes that connection. Yeah, that's a and that's a great point too. Uh, Obviously, the main attraction for the land trust marketplace is, you know, land to recreate on. Yeah. Now, if you have lodging capabilities, you know, if you've got a bunkhouse or you have a hookup for an RV or you will allow someone to camp with a tent, if you can put land and lodging together, your earning potentials are, are much higher too. But you don't have to have that. If you just have, you know, land for recreation and you don't have any lodging or you don't want any lodging, that's great too. Awesome. Yeah, that's it's, it. There's it seems like the opportunities are kind of endless, and you can be creative with how you, you know, utilize your property and elevate what you're doing. You know, in addition yeah. to obviously producing food. So we really appreciate you coming on, Nick, and talking about land trust. And we encourage our producers to reach out. I will provide your contact information to anybody that Great. asks. And um, also, just anything you'd like to add before we let you off the hook today. Well, I'll, I'll ask, I'll ask you a question. Okay. <laughs> How much money do you spent last year by, by recreators on simply access to private land for outdoor recreation? Just, just the ability to go on that private land. How I mean, much do you think was spent? I'm, I'm sure it's in the millions of dollars, probably lots of millions. 17 billion with a B. Wow. Okay. 17 billion dollars was spent just on access, not on gear, not on anything else, just saying sure. you can go here to enjoy the outdoors. So I want to leave, you know, the producers with that point is it's a very large market. Frankly, we think it's actually much bigger when a platform like us makes it easy yeah. for those transactions to happen and those connections to be made. So it's it's not insignificant. It's a very significant market. We want producers to partner with us. Our motivations are very clear. We're a for-profit business. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't make money unless they're making money. So we we eat, sleep, and breathe how to bring more revenue opportunities to our producer partners. Awesome. Well, I think uh, we'll just leave folks with that. It's a seventeen billion dollar opportunity. Let's tap into it. Yes. Let's you know, you know, really make those lands that we're producing food on also help us make a little extra money and. Maybe that even helps one of our landowners go on their own hunting excursion or, or something. Similar. There we go. <laughs> we really appreciate your time today, Nick. And again, we'll link land trust in our show notes. And I am happy to provide your contact info to producers who are interested. And we're going to work with you a little bit more to get the word out to California producers. I think there's a lot of opportunity here in California. So we look Absolutely. forward to working with you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Take care. Thank you.
Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making an improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. We would like to welcome to the show the newest addition to the Western United Dairies team, Aubrey Betancourt. Aubrey, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Aubrey, we would love if you could share with us a little bit about your very extensive background in California agriculture and a little bit about your just about yourself. Sure. Uh, well, I always start with I'm, I'm a fourth third generation farmer um, here in California. My great grandfather uh, came from Portugal and he worked really hard here in the Central Valley and ended up buying a dairy. Um, somewhere along the lines, my father got into row crops and permanent crops, and that's what I've uh, done with him for the last number of years. Um, went to school in Santa Barbara, California at Westmont College, actually studied history uh, with the intent of going into national security. Um, and through uh, a course and circumstance of events, I ended up back in the San Joaquin Valley in 2008, 2009, uh, and had grown increasingly interested in how water law worked and, and how various regulatory uh, programs and laws like the Endangered Species Act came to be and how they were starting to have a real prominent impact on our water supplies um, in that 2008-2009 period with the listing of the Delta smelt and various other species uh, such as fall run salmon and uh, steelhead uh, and others. Um, and so through that process I started um, attending meetings and and meeting people and developed this wonderful network of uh, friends and colleagues uh, and joined up with an organization that was starting up at the time called the California Water Alliance. And they were really focused on how to communicate these issues, um, how to translate this incredibly complicated thing so as to bridge the gap between urban and agricultural users. And so I served as their executive director. They were about six months old when I started with them and I served as their executive director for almost 10 years. And we went from this startup organization to running statewide initiatives, uh, having offices and presences in Sacramento and in Los Angeles, um, and developing this incredible um, reputation for being able to really help communicate and mobilize diverse organizations and entities around um, uh, uh, water issues in the state, and to really lean into that um, and be much more, um, I think, proactive and aggressive in pushing for and advocating for water supply for our farmers, as well as results and accountability for our environmental programs um, in the state as well. Uh, from that, I was asked to, um, uh, in addition to that, I've served on a number of ag organizations all over the country, um, uh, working with state ag commissioners from as far away as Iowa and Florida, uh, Maine, um, and Hawaii, uh, really working in what I joke around and say, look, I made a career out of telling people how not to be California. <laughs> and, and and really trying to help others understand that so goes California, goes the rest of the country, especially when it comes to trends in the regulatory space. Um, and so that had me covering everything from my comfort zone, which was row crops and trees, to um, animal ag and other things um, uh, all over the country. Uh, I studied for a period of time in there, water management in Australia as well, looking at how they address drought over the course of a decade. Um, the technologies they implemented, the cultural change, the agricultural connection there as well. 
um, learned a lot about how to be progressive in problem solving and how to work um, uh, that integration, especially of technology, but also how to really make programs and policy work for you when you're engaged at the table. And it's kind of this idea of it's not enough to just, you know, we always talk about you, you know, if you're, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, but it's kind of taking it a step and saying, you're at the table now know what you want to order. Um, and being very clear in that and how to be very clear in that. So after uh, about 10 years in that space, uh, I was asked to serve as the state executive director for the Farm Service Agency for USDA. Um, I served there for about a year and a half, 31 offices statewide from the border of Oregon to the border of Mexico. Um, and someone once told me when I got that job that it was gonna be one of the best jobs you ever have. And I have to say it was one of the best positions I've ever been in. Um, it was so clear, this wonderful mission of people to really be there for the customer and be there for uh, the farmer. And that was our customer and always putting them first and looking for how to harness uh, creativity in those farm programs. And so for those who, who I'm sure everyone on this call is familiar with, but you know, FSA is really, uh, it's got two sides to its shop. It's the farm assistance programs. Um, you know, I always say the whole mission of FSA is to keep farmers farming. It's, um, you know, if you are struggling or have a disaster, it has programs for that. If you're beginning out, it has programs for that. Um, if, if there is a certain specific issue or challenge, whether it's disease or um, uh, new technologies or things like that, it engages to help finance and support farmers in times of struggle, but also in times of growth and progression. And that includes the loan shop as well as the program shop. So through that, I worked uh, extensively during uh, my tenure there, I actually had my first four months, I had the two largest wildfires up to that point in history, as well as the most deadly mudslide up to that point in history. And so I got really good at disaster response and how to make these programs really work for California. A lot of the programs that are designed take this blanket approach, but the nice thing that I learned about USDA is everything's negotiable. And so how did I work as an advocate within USDA to represent the Western way of life, the Western way of doing business, the California way of doing business. I'm an unapologetic farm girl when it comes to California. I think we are a diva and we should be treated as such because we are the best at what we do. Um, and that was my job, was to be within the USDA organization as an ambassador on behalf of all of our producers in California up through the USDA uh, network and, and organization to make sure that programs and policies were effective for our growers on the ground and our producers on the ground here, but also back down as well, taking the programs and policies of USDA back down into and representing that out into uh, the state. Um, fantastic learning experience, amazing, um, really shaped the way I look at my own way of doing, I've always been service oriented, but this changed the way I looked at the idea of customer and always identifying who my customer is and reverse engineering my solution for them um, and, and then harnessing the power of a network and encouraging people to get creative and creating an environment for them to find solutions that worked for specific problems in a way uh, that was effective and efficient uh, and cost effective for not only the organization, but also for the producers. From there, I was asked to serve as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Water and Science at the Department of the Interior. And so I've spent the last two years in Washington, DC, um, working with the Bureau of Reclamation and the US Geological Survey. Um, my background, obviously, bringing in and having this cross-training from the ag side and the water side, um, really working again on how to capture and wield and deliver water 
uh, for our, our farms, our communities, uh, and, and uh, in some cases um, for our environment in an effective and reliable way and creating water supply in a reliable way. And then on the science side with USGS, really working to bring accountability into that granular data uh, and providing good and solid um, uh, science that is needed in order to make good, decent decisions that these policies and programs are based off of. So that USGS was developing that core raw data to help solve problems, to provide information that we needed to help solve problems, whether we're dealing with water quality issues on the Mississippi River, or I'm dealing with flood control problems out east, or I'm dealing with um, snow uh, surveys out west. How do we make sure we're using the best information to make the best decisions to design the best policies? So it was, you know, USDA, I start at the delivery of a program, and then I came up to Interior where we're actually developing the policies and programs that then were delivered by somebody else. Um, and then with the Bureau of Reclamation, of course, I mean, it's a direct mission, it is so clear. It's how do we capture and store and wield water for the economic and environmental prosperity of those we serve. Um, but there was an added uh, kind of component to my position that was new. It's not normal, it was never done before. Um, and I think it's, in hindsight, I think I would encourage anybody to do this. It was this idea of having come from USDA over to Interior. One of the tasks I was given that was very unique to the administration was um, this idea of aligning the different departments and agencies who have the lion's share of jurisdiction within the water space. In the United States, there is no department of water. In other countries, there's departments of water. And they're all, you go to one place and you have it all. In the US, we have about six departments that have various jurisdictions in the water space. From a water user standpoint, that is exhausting. You'll go all the way up through the chain of command and finally get to the right person on your issue only to find out either you're going to be denied and you got to start over somewhere else, or you're not talking to the right person and it's really over at this other department. So we were looking for ways to not expand and create a department of water or any new department or any new authorities, but to bring the existing departments into this alignment so that there was a clearly defined federal water priority set and that there were um, efficiencies in the decision making between all of those entities. And so that was called the, um, ultimately it was called the Water Policy Committee. Um, we lovingly called it the Water Subcabinet. It consisted of USDA, Department of Interior, Department of Commerce, EPA, Army Corps of Engineers, and Department of Energy. And we literally, it was the power of convention it was bringing high level officials and staff together on a regular basis to have first that awareness, knowing each other's priorities, then being able to set priorities as one voice, as one federal voice, uh, and then knowing how to execute and move across with each other quickly. And so I had just enough working knowledge of EPA's issues and priorities as I did um, almost as much as my own, If you know. Uh, obviously I knew mine a lot more in interior, but they knew mine, I knew theirs. If something came up on mine, I'd go, boom, I know exactly where that needs to go. Instead of sending that poor customer all the way back down to the you know, level, lower levels or regional levels or local levels, I could easily pass that across to another agency and say, I'm gonna get you introduced to the right person, we're gonna get this thing solved, or we're gonna fast pass that solution. Or, we're going to find one voice. We're gonna focus our attention and energy of a leadership to create a solution that works for our customers on the end. Um, it was really revolutionary. It was a, it was a really fostered on the relationship we found at the local levels. And I think a lot of our producers could see that, but then 
to create that at a leadership level and then create that culture down out throughout the, um, the departments and agencies at the local level and regional level and leadership levels all, at all parts of the strata. Um, it really was revolutionary for how we looked at water in the United States and, and we ultimately put out a, um, an executive order and a report looking at what the priorities were in the space for delivering safe and reliable water supply for our agricultural users, our urban users, um, and bringing accountability into our environmental space when, when the use of water for efficient and effective ways. And um, uh, probably the greatest investment in water since, since JFK. It was, it was really an amazing period of time. So um, wrapping up out of there, we did some amazing work. So it was, it, again, it was just kind of this fantastic journey of reverse engineering, starting on the ground and then working my way up through, through even my time in government. But I joked around that I never had a boss until I went to work for government. So um, <laughs> it's been uh, a neat journey. Um, I'm glad to be um, back out on the ground and, and working with my farmers and my producers. Um, if you can sit in a meeting and tell me who your customer is, then we've got somewhere to start. If we don't know who our customer is, then how do we know how we're going to best appropriately serve them? And so um, being able to see this and have this wonderful journey at every level and know that always being in service to my customer and my community, uh, I've been in service to my country. That's something that means a lot to me. Uh, means a lot to me to be able to be in service of my family. Um, and uh, just been very blessed to have a journey and a career that um, uh, is rewarding on all levels. Well, I won't even try and encapsulate that into a segue. Just so many experiences, such a journey, and we're really excited. I actually got to meet you, funnily enough, on the other side of the country when you were in D.C., and I was there for Dairy Leaders, so it's kind of fun to be back in the same state now, and I'm really looking forward to getting to work together and kind of as you were talking, the thing that stuck out so much, and I think Melissa and I both understand this, you know, too, is that we really work to serve our members and that's where our hearts are really at every single day. So kind of maybe tying that theme into our next question of background on your new role here at Western, how do you see that working for producers in the short term and the long term? Uh, so this was actually a really unique, um, an exciting opportunity. The, the position is um, really come, I, the, the evolution of the position to me is really fascinating because it's, 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 it's taking a very unique collaborative and leadership role. The idea being that to put someone dedicated to looking for how as an industry we can, we can lean forward, we can define our own terms and standards and bring our own expertise and experience to the discussion and to the table and the regulatory and policy and then flat out into the everyday uh, operations um, at the local level uh, and regional level. Um, and you know, I think the word sustainability scares people. So coming on board as the director of sustainability, the first and foremost thing that you have to know when I look at the word sustainability is it has to be economically sustainable. If it's not economically sustainable, then you cannot afford any of the other resource management goals you have. So we start there, um, but more importantly, how do we define this term for and bring our expertise to, to the table um, in order to put ourselves in a proactive position um, and maximize our resources to do right by our, our, our communities, our customers, and then also um, the broader goals that are placed on us and try to, again, make it so that we're leaning in and, and regulators and government is reacting to us as opposed to us reacting to them. When we're constantly reacting, we are never going to achieve the goals either for ourselves or, other, or the, those being set for us. When we can come to the table with all of that background and experience and expertise, um, we are uh, 
we are providing, um, I think, what is achievable. When we provide what is achievable, um, we actually become leaders in this space, and that's where we're wanting to be. So the idea that that Cattle Council and Western United came together to create a position dedicated to defining these terms, representing the industry, representing the customer, both at the local level, dealing with um, you know problems at the, on the ground, but also at the macro level, looking for opportunities in the policy and program space in order to, again, bring our leadership and, and experience and expertise to the table so that um, we are creating an environment that is sustainable for us, but also achieving goals that are uh, identifying and achieving goals in resource management um, that are practical. I've seen this work in other parts of the country, and I'm excited to see this industry leaning forward and, and, and the dairy industry leaning forward in that space. More importantly, this position isn't just, and again, I think the brilliance of the position and, and what I'm excited about is the position isn't just exclusive to members. It's a position dedicated to finding solutions and providing service uh, to anyone who needs help. So overly simplified, my job is to go fight the fight and find ways to help people both at the, at the ground level. Someone has a problem in the water world, uh, especially, I think there's a lot of issues in the sustainability realm that everybody wants to deal with, but I think number one for us is water. Absolutely has to be in, in, in California. And so starting at the local level, if there's a water problem, you know, call me up. Let me help you navigate that. Um, find a solution that's going to be an advocate for you in finding that solution for, for your operation or your organization or your uh, community there. But then also looking for those opportunities at the policy and program level um, and finding ways in which we can make sure that we are adequately and accurately represented so that we can achieve the goals uh, of keeping us in business and keeping our producers in business. Uh, so that we can uh, also manage resources in a way uh, that um, is good for our economic and environmental prosperity going forward. Definitely. Well, we're really excited to have you on board, Aubrey, and provide a little extra support in a lot of areas where, you know, frankly, we've been kind of operating in a shoestring fashion, I think, because it's just, there's just so much to keep track of in these different areas for producers and a lot of producers that need the outreach and and just the advice in some cases on on certain issues that they're dealing with and I know um, personally dealing with Sigma in different you know I represent three very distinct regions who have five very distinct you know Sigma GSAs so I think we're excited to have someone kind of take the load off and and be a little more of an expert in those areas than just a clearinghouse for information. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and you know, I'm excited to work with you all too, to really get to know, obviously, look, I've got a background in this, but I've been in like federal world uh, for, for a while. But um, so, you know, definitely need that open relationship with you all um, and with the members and with other, you know, which is people on the ground. Um, what's going on? What are the creative ideas out there? I don't claim to have all the solutions. I actually think we and our members might have the solutions. We just need to create the avenue and opportunity to get those brought forward. That's where I want to partner and work really well with you all and with anyone coming into us to provide that service. Um, there is no, I think the, the, the tendency of government is to try to blanket definition and blanket program, um, you know, create one size fits all solutions or programs or policies. And the reality of it is true, um, you know, if they really want to hit their goals and what I've seen, if you really want to hit your goals in an environment, uh, especially when you're dealing with natural resources and environment, you have to be customized. And the greatest thing about what 
farmers do is they know their land and they know their industry and they know what the inputs are in that space. They know how best to address those solutions or address those problems. Those closest to the problem are most likely to have the solution. I want to be there to be an advocate to help uh, create those solutions for those problems and partner with our members and customers and others to do that. Um, and again, this is, this is a position uh, housed at Western, but open to everyone else, which I think, again, is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I, I look forward to that opportunity too. And, um, and uh, especially focused on the water space. It's, it's just the reality of it is, um, I know there's a lot of other things and I'm happy to work on it. I'm looking forward to that too, but the water space is definitely where we're gonna be spending our time and, and um, defining these terms for ourselves leaning forward in that, leading in that, um, and showing others how, how it can be done. Um, I really think that the innovation and ingenuity of our members and of, of our community um, are what's gonna solve these problems. Um, and so both at the macro level, at the policy and program level, but also at the local and regional level. And so um, whether it's problem solving or it's getting resources on the ground uh, through, um, you know, various uh, uh, entities, you know, government entities or local entities. Um, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm, I'm actively going through and making sure, you know, I've got all my connections right. I know what programs are coming out of the feds and the state um, to help bring assistance, especially with the drought situation right now. Yeah. You, you, don't, you don't address this drought now, you address the next one. Right now we have to survive this one so we can address the next one. And so that's really, I think you asked the short-term question. That's where I'm spending a lot of my time right now is Sigma getting my arms around that, um, really trying to reach out to anybody who, um, you know, building out those networks and really trying to reach out to anybody, identify where our opportunities are in that space, where we are in timelines, but also from a drought assistance standpoint, making sure we're maximizing the different programs that are going to be pushing through the state and the feds and making sure that everyone out there knows how to get access to that, knows how to get the right people. Something gets stuck, you call me. I will help you get it unstuck. Something you got a problem with, need to find it, I will help you find it. And hopefully uh, work with you all uh, to, to really just focus that so you guys can help focus on other parts of what members and, and, and uh, the community needs. Awesome. Well, again, we're very excited to have you on board, Aubrey, and your energy and enthusiasm and your depth of knowledge, which is just unrivaled. And so we'll let you go this afternoon. I'm sure you have other things to do rather than just hang out on our podcast. But before we do let you go, anything else you'd like to say to producers or want them to know as we move into this new direction with Western and the Cattle Council's partnership? Uh, again, I'm here as a resource and an advocate um, to focus in this space. I know that we're playing whack-a-mole. I know what it means. I, I know what it feels like to be eaten by alligators out there, right? The 87 agencies we have to answer to at the local and state and federal level. Um, my job, is to be your advocate in that space, to be the person that helps you get what's stuck unstuck, to help address either your, your you know, if you've got a problem regionally or locally, um, please reach out to me. Um, my, I think my new email address is Aubrey at uh, wudairies.com. I love this state. I love the producers of this state. I'm an unapologetic California farm girl. My job is to keep you farming, keep you dairying, keep you ranching, get water to people who need it and look after our resources because they look after us and, and create the economic and environmental prosperity that created the greatest agricultural state in the nation and in the world. 
and we're going to keep doing that. I'm excited by the leadership that I see out of this organization and um, the brilliance of the collaboration and, and the sincerity of wanting to look out for the whole industry. So again, whether you're a member of Western or not, you can call me. Um, and, uh, and I'm here to, to, um, to listen and to help. And we're going to get these resources unlocked. We're going to find paths forward and we're going to lead and we're going to define sustainability for what works for us because we know our industry better than anyone else. And we do it better than anyone else. And we should never apologize for that or explain it. We know it. And I'm going to make sure you have a voice in that space. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Aubrey. And we look forward to hearing from you in the future. You're welcome back anytime you have updates or anything you'd like to communicate to our members. We hope you'll join us. Cool. Thank you. Looking forward to it, ladies. Did you know that you can turn your dairy manure into cash? Bennett Environmental is offering above-ground dairy digesters at no cost to you. These systems can also remove nitrates from your lagoons to help you comply with water board regulations. Our proven above-ground technology will generate income for your dairy into the foreseeable future. Because we truck the renewable natural gas off-site, your dairy can profit regardless of your location. Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. Dear dairy members of Western United Dairies, please be advised that our Lechitos program will be taking a break starting Wednesday, June 16, and will return on Monday, July 12. You can email me with your labor needs at rashell at wudairies.com and we will work on getting your position filled as soon as we return. Thank you. A huge thank you again to Nick DeCastro, Aubrey Betancourt, and of course, the awesome Tiffany LaMandola, our wonderful economist, for joining us today. We are so thankful for all of our listeners. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you'd like to reach out to us, you can hit me, M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com. And Darby, how can they reach you? You can reach me at D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. Thanks. Have a great weekend, everyone. While West United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, Please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies generous business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com.